Welcome to Frontline. Welcome to Frontline. I am David Gill. And I'm Andrew James. And in this episode, we are going to be discussing the world of rehabilitation of offenders. Andrew, how are you doing? All, all good? I, I, I think so, yeah. I've been working hard, getting myself confused, not knowing what day it is. Usual stuff, you know. As you may have picked up in previous episodes, Andrew is our resident criminal justice experts, yeah. man on the ground. I don't know. I, I guess one of those terms probably says maybe something else. I don't know. But so someone who has worked a big chunk of his career in the world of rehabilitation of offenders, what what does that actually mean? And what does it actually look like in reality then? Well, I mean, on the most basic levels, rehabilitation offenders is effectively um, working with someone who has committed a crime to make them a more functional member of society. It's a fairly straightforward and quite a, a basic premise. In reality, and what it generally means more holistically, really, is that you're taking someone who may be wholly dysfunctional and then encouraging them just to move them, even if you move them just to dysfunctional <laughs> or mostly functional but occasionally dysfunctional or you know just move them anywhere any move someone anywhere away from chaotic mm. further up further up the sliding scale to fully functioning members of society it's small incremental steps at times but it's moving someone from one place on this sliding scale further up to the other more pro-social end which is i i guess straight away from the 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 terminology there of dysfunctional uh i guess mm. Is, is one of those terms that is open to interpretation, but also could be maybe quite a cold word to describe people. What's what's your thoughts on that word then? I, I do feel perhaps there is a, an element of, I don't know, I've, it's something I've often said, I've, I've worked in criminal justice for almost 17 years. And I think as much as it is for, the um, cases um, of the clients or whatever terminology you wish to use for people who are on probation services or anything, there is a, an accepted idea of institutionalization. I think, I think there is for staff as well. And I, I, I think sometimes you do, I think it may, may start in a gallows humor way, but it does unfortunately tend to steep a seep in a little bit more and so be something that maybe something I myself need to consider more of, that you do tend to use some more cold terms than you ordinarily would off the cuff. Um, but yeah, dysfunctional probably is uh, the wrong, slightly unpleasant term. Um, perhaps, I don't know, perhaps just chaotic would have sufficed, really. Well, no, the, the reason I asked is because, again, when you are in the system, as someone that has worked in that system for a, a long period of time, Mm. You, you become part of the culture, you become part of the, the system trying to support, trying to help. And I guess the, the terminology, how, how we use it, how we use it on people, how we use it with our colleagues, this sometimes can be part of the challenge because when you are doing it day in, day out, sometimes I imagine it can just get 
get part of the job. You know, just some days it is just a bit frustrating, a bit annoying, whatever it may be. And you can kind of get lost in, in, in the culture of it. Do you think, do you think that sometimes happens then? I think certainly it's something that um, if you've been in any job for a certain amount of time, I suppose any job after a decade, you need to kind of keep an eye on yourself and make sure you don't kind of get swallowed up in negative habits, whatever it may be. And I guess there's jobs where you are working expressly with people with the overarching aim to help people. You need to make sure that, you know, the negative side of, of jobs, and there is always a negative side to the job, that that doesn't, overwhelm you and start that that starts to frame your practice absolutely it really is interesting about the perspectives that you have until i guess you're in it it's very hard to to really see what it's like or understand what it's like i i, I think back to about 15 16 years ago when i i, I got my first job working in a, a prison and prior to working within it i, I again I, I, my own knowledge of prisons were probably what i saw on tv or read about, or, you know, saw in a movie or something. And in my head, it was all about that punishment, you know, going through it and, you know, hard graft. And I remember as part of my induction, there was, a, again, I don't want to name names, but there was someone who was just absolutely fantastic, who was like a bit of a, a guide for me when I started in that job. And he said to me <clears throat> something that always has stuck with me. He went, a lot of people don't realise that prisons in its modern version, shouldn't be a punishment. It should be all about the rehabilitation. He said that ultimately the punishment starts and stops with the judge. When the judge gives that sentence, the punishment is over. And the next step is about that rehabilitation or that retribution, giving something back or learning and develop some, something that, could, that can come with it. And I remember that really shaped what I did the work that I, I did in prisons because we so I ran a lot of um, like groups for people who had gone through drug problems and it related to their drug related offending. And I think that that really stuck with me on trying to understand that. But the problem is what he was saying was accurate. But the prison model that we utilize is very much a, a Victorian model. And you're trying to use old-fashioned retribution models to try and maybe overlap this with uh, rehabilitation. It's not to say that I should that I'm, I'm saying that all prisons should immediately shut down. But what I guess I am saying is is that when you've tried to create something from something else, there is always going to be a challenge there. It's just some interesting things because I've, I've myself have never worked in prisons. Um, I've got family members who have. And quite a few friends who have as well. Some who've facilitated programs have done various sessions and various interventions in custody. And they are generally people who've done the same things out in the community too. And it is that interesting thing of the engagement that you get in custody compared to community. It seems to me to be a lot higher. There is a lot, a greater opportunity to do greater good mm. that is maybe isn't always capitalized upon. The thing with, you know, running groups, as you mentioned, again, that is what a lot of people don't realise goes on in prisons. You know, we there's workshops where people, you know, learn a trade, a craft, or I think the term that they used when I worked there, I don't know if they still do, is meaningful activity, actually doing, having purpose with your time. But there are other areas in it. You know, there are treatment for mental health, physical health, for drug uh, alcohol problems there is all this other stuff going on that I just don't think a lot of people see but I guess another challenge 
we, we see with the, this part of the criminal justice system is a lot of offences, particularly when I worked within in the prisons, were for people on really short-term drug-related offences. And because they're on such short-term prison sentence, they go in and probably have a level of complexity that needed to be uh, looked into to do, again, with their mental health, maybe addiction, maybe to do with physical health problems that being missed, or maybe needing talking therapies, counselling, whatever it may be because of past trauma. And it would be missed because of the limited resources, the, the waiting list, what you could physically do in that time. And then that person would maybe go out back onto the streets, not having those things dealt with, and maybe certain elements opened up and half dealt with, and which would just make it even more challenging. And, and, and unfortunately, I guess this is one of the biggest challenges of rehabilitation, is making it long-term and avoiding this cycle of coming back in and out of the criminal justice system. I, I did quite a lot of work at magistrates court before I moved on to Crown Courts. I'd never say progressed. It's not progression. It's a sideways move. But still, in, in magistrates court, you're a lot more likely to see those sometimes extremely short sentences of like six weeks. I mean, six weeks, you only serve half, so you're there for three weeks. If you've got an issue of whether it's, say, an entrenched drug addiction and you've committed offences of shoplifting to feed that addiction, you get arrested, you get you plead guilty, you get sentenced to six to eight weeks. Three to four weeks in custody, you're going to get processed, you're going to get in, you're going to get onto a wing, then you're out. There's going to, there's going to be nothing done in terms of anyone even just starting to approach you to see, okay, what do you need? What are the issues here? What can we do to help you? There's nothing, not, not even a second will be done on that. If we now think of community responses, the biggest part of that is, of course, our probation service. And if anyone has been watching the news over the last few years, probation have gone on a bit of a journey from being a public entity to then being split up as half public entity and half private enterprise, and then back as a public entity, which has just caused all sorts of confusion, I imagine, for people on probation orders and for the staff themselves and for, for the wider community. But there is also the issue of the identity of probation. Because you, you said something interesting just before we started. Do, do you want to kind of just mention that again about its visibility? Yeah, I mean, th this is one of the main the main problems I think that the probation service has when it comes to its existence as a public entity. When it comes down to the, the um, main public services that you have, obviously police, everyone knows the police. In fact, all of the 999 services visible, needed, everyone knows them. Mm. When it comes to punishment and rehabilitation, you have police, you have prisons. and But then really, when it comes to it, unless you are employed by or are subject to probation, you probably won't know if, well, either won't know it exists, or if you do know it exists, won't have an actual clue what work it is that they conduct. And that is a huge problem when it comes to having any sort of leverage, public leverage in terms of increased budgets or increased public support for, for the service, which is problematic, especially because, as we were talking before, when it comes down to it, rehabilitation of criminality or criminal behaviour isn't a, a vote winner for politicians. You know, this isn't a party political thing at all. This is you completely across the board in most countries, in fact, certainly ourselves in America, 
being seen to be soft on crime, which is what rehabilitation and those sorts of services would be seen as in certain publications and certain parts of society, that is an instant turn off for voters, which can be uh, turned and absolutely destroy a campaign. Whereas if you commit to being harsher, harsher penalties, more heavy, more severe consequences for crime, which don't help the service whatsoever, then you you lose that element of, like I said, lose that leverage when it comes to a public discussion of how to increase funding, and increase visibility. You, you're right in saying that this isn't a party political thing because most or most political parties out there talk about how you know they protect people and strong on crime and of course public protection has to be considered you know we we, we want to be in a safe and welcoming and and supportive society but i think again just looking at this rationally i think the, the challenge that we have and and you often hear people say things like people are making choices but a lot of people are making survival choices which often means not so good outcomes, but they're making it in that moment for survival. And then it just snowballs and becomes the norm. And I think if we fixate too much on just punishing and wagging our fingers and saying what you did is wrong without helping to understand why, the danger is they're going to come out, not really understand it, maybe even be angry at the system and maybe go back to old ways of behaviour, old patterns, or maybe... I hate, I don't want to just boil it down to this, but there is a, I guess, a, a view that if you are in prison, you can le learn to become a better criminal. And I do think there is some truth in if you are around people who are maybe had a career, a life of this, you may see that this is a viable way of living. And, I, you know, I, I just think if we're not understanding why people are doing what they're doing, the danger is, we're just going to keep going through the same systems. And, and interestingly, though, from a political point of view, it makes I think people should be talking about this because we end up spending so much of our taxes keeping people in prison, keeping people on probation orders, getting them through the court system. All of that requires so much money. And I'm not saying we get rid of it. I'm just saying that surely that should just be one option. And at the minute, that is seems to be the only option. And I think and, and until we realistically look at, rather than looking at just the crime and going, what's the punishment and how do we rehabilitate this person to what's the crime? Why did it happen? Why did this person do what they did? And yes, to begin with, that's probably going to mean a deeper dive into things, a deeper look into the why. But maybe just maybe if you get it right then it will lead to a better response. It will lead to a better rehabilitation and ultimately reduce the risk of that person re-offending again in the future. I think this is where generally my area of, if I, I'm loath to call it, but if you want to say expertise, I'll, I'll, I'll take it, uh, is when it comes to that, that side of dealing with, dealing with people at the, at the point of court access, at the, at the point of the, um, well, just pre-sentence, to try to interview people and try to drill down and find out, the, find out that why. And then try to concoct and develop a, a package of interventions that would best support someone in um, in dealing with those situations. Because I mean, it's something you said before. If you're absolutely right, if if the only tactic is to tell people bad bad behaviour, you will be punished now. And especially if someone is 
or has some sort of underlying trauma which causes a particular thinking pattern if you if, if then the the state that's there supposed to be there to protect then tell someone they're wrong all that really does in my head is reinforce the idea to this person that the state no longer is there to help them so mm -hmm. it makes them further disengage from the support that's meant to be there yeah. so it, it 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 creates a fair if done wrong which it can very much be done wrong it, it creates a further barrier which then just makes more problems for everyone further down the line the service is attempting from what I've seen, and I really need to choose my words very, very carefully here, it seems to me that the service are looking less, or has over in recent years, started to look less at the individual and rather look at particular cohorts. Basically, if, if someone's... they do very, You do various scorings as part of probation, as you probably recall from uh, some of your time being attached to us in some way. Was that's strange to say? Um, what did I say about earlier on about being part of the culture? One of indeed. us, one of us. <laughs> so, a lot of it is built on you know, if, if someone's score is X, then you should consider these interventions. If it's this, then you should be looking at these packages and looking at groups as more of a homogenized situation rather than address the individual that sat in front of you. That approach seems to be something more of a there's they want that the, there is an attempt to build in a more uniform approach region to region area to area so it can be considered a national approach hmm. to certain ways rather than addressing the person who sat in front of you okay do you think some of that is probably to do with the identity issue that maybe they the, the probation have gone through over the last few years from being, like I said, this public entity to being half public, half private company run to back being a public entity. It's almost like having this standardized approach is one of the ways to build that identity up, maybe at the cost of perhaps not being as person centered as, as maybe they could be. Without a doubt, pretty much, well, literally every public service, the focus is on tangible and viewable targets rather than how many people have you helped stop re-offending. It's how many people, how many of X groups have been run, how many of this group has been run. It's a financial model of supporting public, of supporting public services, in inverted commas, funding public services, number of targets to get through no, the, the hoops that you have to jump through in order to meet your target to get your funding and it's I, I i fully accept that if you were to do it literally every single person that came through you dealt with in a completely different unique way yes it would be harder to quantify it'd be much much harder to quantify but if that and i'm not saying it absolutely would but if that led to more long-term outcomes for that person if it meant that they abstain from reoffending for longer if it meant that they got the help they needed isn't that better and, and i think at this point it's, it's important for us to to recognize that we it, it's we're not saying that it's about being completely soft on crimes i think the danger is when you have these discussions and i imagine if we were politicians discussing this the other side would be so you're going to be soft on crime then if people are attacked on the street we shouldn't stop them and i think what we're trying to do here is find that balance and recognize that, yes, there are certain people who do certain crimes that there is an awareness of their what they're doing, really premeditated, that understanding. And actually, 
a greater emphasis towards a punishment and keeping them away from the public is beneficial. And actually the rehabilitation that goes on there will be perhaps maybe less because that person will be making active choices. But I guess what we're talking about here is, is the, the, the amount of people that just eat up so much of the, the budget of the money and actually so many people who don't need to be off the streets. I, I think in particular, again, about people who are in long-term addiction, who end up in prison, as we said earlier on, for things like acquisitive crime or maybe making poor choices whilst intoxicated. Yes, what they're doing, there is a problem, but surely locking them up isn't a solution because otherwise they're just going to continue it when they come out. And I think if we look at a great system of treating that as a health issue first and for- foremost rather than a criminal issue maybe just maybe we might start to see a reduction in reoffending rates see a reduction in reoffending rates but also an increase in in health uh, health improvement as well you know it's just one of those things that maybe if we just looked at it slightly differently that could eat up such a huge proportion and then the police probation the court system can focus on the crimes that need that whole system to be utilized it's a difficult conversation to have because as you said if this were to be a discussion out in um, the political landscape you'd be torn apart for uh, even suggesting anything other than more sterner punishments or at least a maintenance of the current and that could be perhaps part of the issue that public protection and moral panic have almost been intertwined in certain situations yes law breaking is wrong that's why the laws are there to maintain levels of civic society civil society that's their purpose and any breach of them is a is problematic and something that needs to be addressed but you don't have to treat every person in the same way there are situations that can be better dealt with through more targeted and more intelligent intervention than simply depriving someone of their liberty for a fortnight, which in reality won't help anyone. Again, with with this argument is, like you said, that that political argument, it becomes black and white. It becomes you either this or you either that. But actually, that's the challenge with this, is that if you break down criminal acts into a black and white view, we miss, I mean, there are certain things that you would just argue. You know, you're talking about, sexual offences, you're talking about, you know, violent crime, you're talking about murder. Of course, no one is saying, oh, we should go soft on that. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But what we're also saying is there are so many things that perhaps people are very black and white and they shouldn't be, because actually most people aren't about crime. Because, again, we were talking about this just before we pressed the record, but there are certain criminal acts that aren't seen as being that deviant as in most people will kind of normalise them or give an excuse. So a a perfect example is, and I I want people to think about who's listening to this, who drives a car, who was speeded, who was gone over the speed limit. And that justification is only a few miles, I'm running a bit late, or there's no speed cameras. But actually, that is breaking the law. And yes, it's treated primarily as a, um, a civil response rather than a criminal response, but you go too fast. And you can still be prosecuted for dangerous driving. But so many people will just normalise it. Same again with drink driving. I, I guess the attitude has maybe changed somewhat. But the, how many people will just be like out at me and go, I've only had two or three pints. I'm only down the road. Again, it's still a crime, but people don't always see it as deviant. 
streaming, illegal streaming, illegal downloading. Again, that eats up so much uh, uh, money in the, the entertainment industry, but we normalise it because we are. You know, it's a three o'clock kickoff on a Saturday and I can't watch this Premier League game anywhere else. I'll just put a stream on. It's just a one off. But again, it all adds up to it being a crime. But we don't always see it that way. And I think this is often the issue with the wider public. We try and break it down to black and white and it just isn't black and white. One of the sticks to perhaps beat the drum of more heavy penalties over rehabilitation. You know, sometimes when people do commit a crime, they go through either prison system or they go through probation and they have whatever the, their issue may be. And at some point they fall off, they fall off and do reoffend again. And that's used as a stick to beat with, oh, well, you know, it doesn't work. Mm. Whereas it's not a point of this, it shouldn't be a consideration of this doesn't work. It's like, okay, that that tactic didn't work. What What needs to be done? Or it could just simply be a case of, the sliding scale of they fell off the wagon, if you want to use that term. I'm not sure if that's the right term to use, but not everyone's perfect every time. Especially for someone who's that that's the lifestyle that they've known and that's all they've known for perhaps a decade, expecting them after maybe a year, 18 months of being on a community order to then completely issue the entire lifestyle that they knew before for the rest of their days. It's not realistic. You're- perhaps Someone will fall off the wagon or commit another offence, but it's the it's the reduction of that behaviour is what you're looking for. I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I think it, it's so true that we expect, particularly in the world of rehab, we expect perfection, and we are all messy human beings. We all mess up. It's just that usually we'd mess up when no one's watching our every move or, you know, tagging us or demanding us we go to every this course every week or, you know, we do this. And I'm not saying that, you know, we should be excusing behaviour like that. We should be maybe understanding the behaviour a little bit more because, like you say, they may have ticked nine out of ten things and done bloody well on it. And that one out of ten, yes, it didn't work, but should we throw the book at him for that one thing? Or should we try and understand what went wrong and maybe look at something different? Because again, you, you, you're absolutely right. People have that years and years of entrenched ways of doing things, behaviors. We all do. We're all human. And if we can see progress, we should celebrate it rather than use it as a stick to beat people with. So it, it, it's, I guess we're, we're having this discussion. It's making it sound like everything <laughs> is wrong and nothing is working, but actually there are some really good practice out there. I mean, there's some really good stuff. And I think at this point, it's probably worth bringing in this week's guest to talk about what we can do. And actually, even with the current systems in place, where the current challenges exist, all the things that we've talked about, we can actually do something really positive. I just want to welcome this episode's guest. So we will begin with who are you and where are you from? I am Alastair, Alastair Jackson. I'm Chief Exec of the Recycling Lives Charity. We work with rehabilitation, we do food redistribution, we work with homelessness, amongst other things. So yeah, nice to see you. Fantastic. So in this episode, we're discussing the world of rehabilitation in the criminal justice system. And we've been talking about the challenges of finding a model or a system that works long term. So I guess we would like to just begin with asking you about your approach to supporting people in the world of rehabilitation. 
I guess I should start by saying I never expected to be sat here talking about rehabilitation. We never set out to do this. So Recycling Lives was born from uh, a scrap metal recycling business, actually, a long, long time ago. Uh, we don't need to go through that story today, but we kind of started the journey by working with a couple of guys from our local open prison, Kirken Prison, um, who came to us on, on day release to do some work. Never expected it to go any further than that, and not really having another couple of lads, but working in in the in the yard. But as 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 we saw them develop, we we kind of thought, well, actually, we, we've made a change in these guys' lives by taking a chance on them, giving them some opportunities, and treating them like we treated anybody else. Which had a little bit of a seed and idea that 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 stayed in our heads, and and basically all we've done is develop that seed over the years. And now we have a program where we have workshops in prisons, we have workshops out of prison. Those workshops, we can talk about more if you want. They, they typically are recycling workshops, though we do some other stuff as well. And effectively, we give the men and women that we work with the same skills, the same tools, and the same support that we would any employee anywhere. They just might happen to be in a prison. We keep it simple. We, we are really looking for two things, and that's building a work ethic and a self-esteem in, in any individual so that when they are released from prison, they're better prepared for the world of that's outside. Then as we've grown over the years, we've added on all sorts of things. We realised that just giving someone a job isn't the be on and end all. You've got to wait, make sure they've got somewhere to live that's decent, got to make sure that they're, they're ready to the trials and tribulations of life. So we've grown this pastoral team, we have accommodation provision, we work with all sorts of different employers and we're there for the bumps in life for, for the men and women that we work with. But effectively, it's a model based in work, creating a work ethic, creating a self-esteem, making people feel that they are worth something, and then being ambassadors for those people when they come out of prison, continuing that relationship so that when they go into a job, they uh, they have the best chance of being successful. It works over for years and years and years since we've been doing this. Our reoffending rate is under 5% consistently, year after year after year after year after year. And that compares really, really well with the national averages. I think you, I think you know. Also, our, our our percentage rate of people getting into employment is. I get upset if it if it dips below eighty percent. I get really annoyed because I think it should be a hundred percent. But that's a an idealist view that some people are. We have to. They're not even. They're not ready even after the support. So we have to continue supporting them. So, uh, but that again compares. I'm on a couple of boards outside of recycling lives and people get excited when they get 15% employment and 20% employment. So I guess for me to get upset when we're less than 80% employment shows we're doing something quite right. So you you, you talked about that um, pastoral support that you provide people because you recognise that it wasn't just about the employment. Do you want to just talk a little bit more about what that pastoral support looks like and how you implement it? Yeah, so so we have, we, we've basically built a team over the years of, of people who passionate number one is is we recruit on passion not on paper and not on qualifications we recruit on passion to help change people's lives and i have this wonderful team that just won't stop uh sometimes at their detriment and we have to pull them back a bit but we'll we'll leave almost no stone unturned to get the person to where they want to be and, and effectively we've got how we do it is in each prison workshop if it is a prison workshop we have our own manager so that manager is an operations manager for a workshop, but also the starting point for everybody's journey. So he or she is not just an operational manager. He is, he or she is a coach, a mentor. 
might be a father figure, a mother figure, much more than just a manager. So starting that journey there, gaining trust, because a lot of the men and women that we work with kind of don't trust people. There's a lot of promises goes on within the criminal justice system. We're going to do this for you, we're going to do that for you. And often these promises don't get followed through on. So it's very important that we do. So it starts with that, those managers, and often they get forgotten as oh, it's just an operations job. It's absolutely not just an operations job. It's an operations job and a confidence building job. And yeah, the, uh, so that's the starter. Then we have uh, people within the team that we class as, as, they have fancy titles, but I'm not very good at titles. So let's call them key workers for, because that's a simple way of, of, of thinking about them. So we have key workers that cover two or three prison workshops each, and they will be in and out of those prisons, again, building relationships with the men and women in those prisons so that they know those their individuals inside out. And more importantly, the individuals grow a trust with their key worker because that key worker that they know within the prison remains the key worker when they, when they leave prison. And I think that's really, really key, the continuity of you are speaking to the same person. So often within the, the, the criminal justice system, you'll have a couple of workers within prison, one from probation, one from the prison, and they completely change when you leave prison because your probation officer might not be the same probation officer that you had inside. And then you, you're constantly having to rebuild layers of trust, which is difficult. One of the key components of what we do, I think, is the fact that that, is, that that continuity is there all the time. So if you've got Lucy as your key worker when you're in prison, Lucy remains your key worker when you're out of prison. So I think that's very important. And, and the key worker's job is around about understanding, well, actually, what's your plan when you're coming out? Often people don't have any plan at all, but what is the plan? So basic stuff is, have you got somewhere to live? Uh, are you being mandated to go to approved premises by probation, perhaps? Are you not? Do you have family to go back to? Do you have friends? Can you go to certain areas? Can you not go to certain areas? Is it better that we move you out of your re-offending area if that works for you? Is it better that you go back to where you were? Then once you've got kind of those basics in, in mind, it's, well, actually, what job in an ideal world will you do? And what kind of jobs can we get you to do uh, that you're happy with while you get to the point to get your ideal job? Because clearly not everybody can walk out of prison and walk into their perfect job. So managing expectations, all that kind of stuff. We're then working with them on actually some... Lots of the men and women have never done an interview, haven't got a CV. So so making sure if other agencies haven't done that, if they have, brilliant, but if they haven't, then we, we can help with that. Uh, and then bringing employers in to, 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 to meet men and women in our workshops and see actually these people haven't got three heads and they're not going to hold a gun to your head when or anything stupid like that and the preconceived things that people think that they are normal human beings that have, have maybe made a mistake or quite a few mistakes but deserve a chance. And then we're kind of ambassadors, is, is, is what the key workers do, then creating relationships with, with landlords and employers. And then what we've added over the years is, is specific parts of the team that just deal with employment and employers. So with, with the amount of people that we're working with, there's too many just to place in one business. So we place people with a couple of hundred different businesses at any given times. So we're then looking for those opportunities, managing those opportunities, but very importantly, managing the relationships with the employers. So almost holding their hands through, this is how you react when something may go wrong because people do wobble. So that that's another side of it. And then, again, in the early days, we didn't ever deal with people who had issues with drugs and alcohol and, and, and things like that, and mental health. We weren't experts in that and I always wanted to steer clear of it. It scared the living daylights out of me, if, if, I, if I was telling you the truth. 
but society's moved on massively and, and as you know better than most the issues with drugs and alcohol and mental health are just more and more prevalent so we brought in some specialist support workers as well that cover all over the place and they are experts in in that kind of field so we can then add on to that which has broadened our our offer as well and then and then we've just recently brought in another team called the ace project who work with people who are even further away but effectively we try and do everything without doing everything so we're enabling people to do things rather than molly coddling them and doing it for them we're kind of enabling people to do that and knocking down the barriers with them and then hopefully setting them on their way it, we say yeah we'll support you for 12 months after release but some people need three months support some people need the whole 12 month support some people need our support forever and we're still working with them and you can drop in and out whenever you need so yeah it's kind of unique i think the beauty of it is that because we are not governed by commissioners and contracts and ticking boxes, we could do what we want when we want to make sure any individual gets the best kind of journey possible. So everyone's different. We don't have a preset plan. We don't have to do this tick box and that, that tick box. So it makes us fairly unique. What would you say have been the biggest challenges for you and, and the team? Working in prisons, that's hard work. And don't get me wrong, I like working with prisons. And it's not, I'm not talking about any individual officer or individual that we work with because it's a challenging job. It's it's often underfunded, it's often understaffed. So this is not a dig at prisons, but historically prisons haven't been ready to kind of look at the way we do things and and run workshops in that kind of way and and add that support on. And often things that you would want to do that seem entirely logic to a bloke like me from an outside environment, it, it completely illogical to somebody who runs a prison who has a mindset of, quite rightly, security first. It, it, it's about keeping the people in there secure and safe. And sometimes that's to the detriment of things like getting stock in and out of prisons, getting people in and out of cells and things like that, which help with the day-to-day stuff. So pr- working with prisons has always been entertaining and, and remains so, but it adds to the fun. So that's obviously a challenge. In the past, challenging employers preconceptions we're in a kind of different space now um, which i'll talk about in a second but many employers i mean let that rewind back to me to when, however many years ago it was when that first prison officer came to recycling lives and i was an operations manager and said would you like to take a prisoner on day release i told him to get lost because not because i had anything against prisoners but i had the same preconceptions that everybody generally has of that well actually they're going to why would I want a prisoner to come here they're, they're obviously bad people they're going to come and steal things and do things and be uh, nasty and all that kind of stuff which is absolute garbage but that's the preconception that many people have I'm obviously seeing the light have changed all that kind of stuff so that, that's good but one of the biggest battles we had over the years was knocking down those preconceptions time after time after time after time after time of look Yes, they've got a past. We're not condoning what anybody's done. We're not judge. We're not jury. But someone else has done that job. But somebody has also decided that this is the time for these people to come out of prison. Again, not my decision. So what would you rather do? Would you rather that they came out again and were one of those statistics and reoffended again within 12 months, gone back to prison? So it might be selling drugs to your kids. It might be robbing your granny's house it might be even worse would you rather they did that and became yet another statistic or we give them a little bit of help give them a lift give them some responsibility give them some trust and they became a different kind of statistic one of the under four percent that doesn't reoffend, that does get a job that pays taxes that becomes a good member of society 
that then then permeates around the community. So, but that was a battle. People weren't scared of that, and I can understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has always been a massive challenge, and and trailblazers trailblazers like ourselves and Simpsons and people like that who've who've kind of gone above the parapet and said, no, actually, there's another way to do this, and you will not only will you get you're doing a good thing for somebody, but you get a bloody good employee, actually. If you've given somebody who nobody else can, will, will give an opportunity to, you give them an opportunity, trust them, we, we get it back tenfold. So you, you get this whole opportunity for people to build and, and build with you. So that, that that's always been a challenge. It's different now, oddly. So let's not get into Brexit and the pros and cons of it, but one of the, one of the pros, the only pros I can think of of Brexit is that there's loads of jobs for people. So that's not a good thing, by the way, but let me let me get to the point. Now all these businesses and corporations that wouldn't touch people coming out of prison with a barge pole suddenly have this big hole in their recruitment uh, that they can't fill. So suddenly some people say, well, bloody hell, where, where can we get people from? Ah, I know. Let's employ people from prison. So we've suddenly got a complete change where we can't keep up with the people bringing us up. Saying, have you got anybody that we can do here and do there? And we're not about that. We're not a recruitment agency, but that that used to be a real problem is actually a problem in a different way now. So the problem that we have now is not getting people into jobs. It's ensuring they're getting people into good quality jobs, but also that they're going to get looked after when they're there. My my big concern with this whole change in attitude is that as soon as there's a problem, this person's going to be jettisoned. Well, we're not we're not dealing with that. I, that, I knew that was going to happen. So we um one of the big things this is we have now is is making sure that we talk employers through. Look, everyone has problems in life. People who've been in prison for a long time will probably have slightly amplified problems to the people who haven't. And you've got to be ready to deal with those problems in a sensitive way, and we can help you with that, not just throw the baby out with the bathwater. So that's that's been an issue that has completely changed, which is quite interesting. Be interesting to see how that grows mm. as presumably at some point the employment market will settle down again so we begin to see whether that remains as a as a thing or we go back to how we used to be and then yeah the big i guess the biggest one is is just the the explosion of issues with drugs uh, and alcohol and mental health that i don't know whether we were naive and it wasn't there or whether it was there and it was just at a lower level or we didn't see it it's yeah everywhere and and actually the hardest bit is not in prison for what we do that's quite easy really because everything contained everything's there for you when somebody comes out and you've got the temptations of life the challenges of life outside it becomes the prevalence of drugs in society now is because it becomes all too easy to just drop into or back into drugs use that then can often set off a spiral of issues that means we're dealing with stuff that we never thought we'd ever deal with so yeah that's a huge challenge but we like challenges Challenges are good. Um, if we didn't, if we didn't have challenges, it'd be boring. And who wants to be bored in life? If those are some of the key challenges, then what about the successes? You've already talked about the re- the reoffending rate is so low and the employment rate is so high. Let's talk about that a bit more. Any other sort of key successes you want to celebrate and talk about at this point? I'm not a great one for data. I always talk about those two things in terms of employment rate and reoffending rate, but it's people, David, really that are the successes. So. There's so many people whose lives are changed. And I, I used to be quite glib about it. I remember the first lad that we that we took on all those years ago from, from Kirk and Prison. 
consistently used to come and tell me I'd saved his life all the time. You saved my life, Alistair. And I'd say, you're talking rubbish. I've not saved anybody's life. I'll just give you a job. But And then he would tell me, well, if it not been for you giving me that job, I would have done this, this, this. I'd be back inside. And now I've got a family. I've got my family back. I've got my kids back. And it starts to permeate in your head of actually blinking out. We're doing something just really amazing here. Still don't think he say I saved his life. He saved his own life. It, it's, it's we we kind of help people to do it, but those kind of things. There's there's so many of them. I mean, what one one of the greatest is we, we we met a lady called Yvonne through one of our probation contracts. So we work with probation. We do an eight to twelve week program where people work thirty two hours a week, get full paid, get get job experience. The the best case scenario is they're going to get get into a job. Worst case scenario, they've got eight weeks full pay. They've got something on the CV. They might not be quite ready for a job, but we'll we'll continue to support. Yvonne came through us years ago on that Achieve uh, program, uh, just dismantling tellies, I think it was, in the community. And did really well, so we offered her a job within the business. And again, she did really well, but she was a really hard worker, but with no more aspiration to do anything more than, than work hard at that job at the time. Then we decided to, to we'd always been in male prisons only, and we decided, well, let's go to a female prison. Again, quite kind of naively, yeah, this would be the same. It, it clearly isn't, but that's a conversation for another day. But with the, one of the th- one of the things we thought we've got to have a female manager in our if we're put in a women's prison. We've got we can't stick a male in a women's prison when many of the women are in prison in the first place because of issues that they have with males on the outside. Can't do that. We've got to have a female role model. So we looked around and we, we try and promote from within, as you know, as much as we can. We looked around, and thought, right, who is there? And we thought, right, Yvonne, she's got. She's been to prison. She's she's done well. She's she's done this. So I chatted to her and said, "Look, there's this opportunity coming. Well, I think you could be the right person." She said, "I'm not the right person. I've never been a manager. I'm, I'm terrified." I said, "No, you are the right person." So we chatted and and we 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 went through it and and eventually she thought, "Yeah, I'm going to give this a go." My my idea was that she'd be able to identify with the women and the women would be able to identify with her and therefore things would move on a bit. So we had to go through this vetting process with, with the, anyone going into a prison has to be vetted for obvious reasons and you have to declare how many offences you've done and what you've done. And Fortunately, we, we were working with a very enlightened governor at, at Style at the time who, who knew that Yvonne was going to fail the test because she, she'd lived in Style. Yvonne had lived in Style prison. We were really knocking barriers down at this point. We were asking to put someone who'd been in Style several times back into Style. And to cut a long story short, she failed the vetting as she obviously would. The governor quite rightly took a chance on her. We took a chance on her. She went in and she was exactly what I hoped she would be. She she has become, she once said to me, she said, Alistair, you, you lied to me. And I'm like, why have I lied to you? She, she said, you said I was going to be a manager. She said, you are a manager. You're manager of the workshop. Yeah, she said, I'm a manager. I'm a mother. I'm a sister. I'm a counsellor. I'm a coach. I'm a mentor. I'm everything. You never told me that bit. I said, yeah, but that's what it, that's what it means to be a manager at Recycling Lives. And she has, you imagine that first day for her walking back into the prison that she'd been locked up lots of times, not for anything massive. The reason she went backwards and forwards to prison was to feed her family. So she was she was committing low-level crimes to feed her family, but she'd be back in and out. Imagine walking in that first day for the first time ever, not being escorted by somebody around the prison. Not just that, but holding the keys to the prison she used to be locked up in and unlocking doors and unlocking gates what a story that is and on the back of that the women look at her and go well if you can do it i can do it and so many women who otherwise would may not have made it 
have made it because of Yvonne and her strength and what she did. So much so that there's this thing within the criminal justice sector, it's a Butler Trust Award, which is the most highly coveted award within the criminal justice system, mostly won by prison officers, prison staff, probation staff, quite rightly, for the work that they did. Yvonne got a prison Butler Trust Award a couple of years ago for the work that she'd done. So imagine that journey from serial low-level offender to going through a probation programme just to get a job, to becoming a manager, to changing people's lives, to them standing in front of Princess Anne, getting a Butler Trust Award at St. James's Palace, I think it was. Wow. Don't get better than that. It still puts the hairs upon my neck. And she's she's obviously a standout for me, but there are so many, so, so many. You get letters. I remember we got a letter, one of the lads that came, he came through our prison programme, came into our residential, did well in the residential, but he'd spent 23 years of his life back and forth, back and forth, drugs, back and forth, back and forth, again and again and again. And he'd, he'd given up on himself and his family had given up on him. And he turned his life around completely with our help and uh, is doing really well working for the blue chip company now. And we got a letter off his mum that is just so emotional, thanking us. And again, I, 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 we, I, we take a little bit of credit, but people should be thanking themselves, but thanking us for giving her, her son back, thanking us for giving her daughter-in-law, her husband back, thanking us for giving her grandchildren, their dad back. And you're like, you're reading these letters and you just, it's hard to keep it together. And so the impact that we have, and it's thousands now, David, thousands. Not every single one of them has done 23 years in jail and been backwards and forth. Lots have done, done less, but we work with some people who you'd never think you'd turn it. And they do. So they're the things I think are the successes. Yeah, the numbers are nice and, and the, the impact you have on society in terms of financial savings and all that kind of stuff. But doesn't really matter, does it? It is if if you're changing lives again and again and again, and then it permeates, doesn't it? Because one of the funny things with with lots of people is if 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 you if a parent has an offended background, often kids end up with offended backgrounds. And what we see quite a lot is when the parents sort themselves out, the kids stop stop as well. You you've talked about how you've grown over the years. What's what's next for recycling lives? What, what where do you see yourself a year, two years, three years, whatever it may be? We were approached um, about a year ago to to look at another kind of organisation that was part of another charity that was coming to the end of its funding. It's called the Ace Project. And everything I've talked about so far, we've worked on people who who all right that that they, they've got troubled lives and troubled backgrounds. But we 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 thought actually we can get these people to a place where they're ready for work. What the Ace Project do is, is look at people far away from where we're dealing with really massively chaotic backgrounds, nowhere near the world of work, nowhere near being ready to go in a workshop. So we looked at ACE Project and their funding, like I say, it runs out early next year and and their umbrella organisation didn't see a way of taking them on. So we brought them into into the Recycling Lives family and and I think it's magical, actually. Again, ask me 15 years ago, do we take the ACE Project on? The answer is absolutely no chance. But now it, it's it's the logical next step for us because the ACE Project team have skills of working with people who are so far away from the world of work, so far the, away from being just day-to-day life. They bring these enormous skills. But they, the issue that they have is when after they've worked with them to a point, they have no end game. So you get to a point, then what do you do? 
well, we've got the end game. What we didn't have was the skills to work with the people so far away to get them to the point where we're ready for the end game. So I think we've got this wonderful addition to what we do. And it's already working well. They've only, they've only been part of us for three, four months. But you can see it already where the teams have almost become one team already. And we've seen people that Ace have been working with that would have got to a point and then kind of stagnated that are now moving on to jobs, moving on to different things with us. We've already had a couple of great successes of people who, if you'd asked Ace, these are never going to get a job. And they've got them to the point where now, actually, they are in a job. They absolutely are in a job. So I think that that's something I really want to keep that. I mean, we've committed to, to the end of April uh, next year. The funding ends in April next year. So one of, one of the things I'm working on is how we make sure we've got enough financial uh, funding to make that continue. And I, I want to embed that, and we will embed that. That will enable us to to kind of add that little thing. Um, we're, we're on with a pilot, which is funded through the National Lottery, where I've talked a lot about our own workshops during this chat. I'm absolutely convinced that our wraparound model can sit anywhere at anybody's workshops, as long as those workshops are decent workshops that have got good working. So we've, we, with the support of the lottery, we, we've got a chunk of money to take on it, a couple of extra people. And we're working with five prisons that we, we don't normally work with. And we've bolted, what we're bolting on is our wraparound model to workshops that have nothing to do with us. So we don't have our own manager in. It's not recycling lives work. It's, it might be a textile, it might be a laundry, it might be a cafe, whatever it is in these different prisons. Um, and we're bolting on uh, our model to people who, who who we think are ready to have that support. My vision is that that goes well. It will go well. We'll make it go well. And already we're seeing positive results. We've only been doing it for a few months, but there are positive results already. We're getting people into jobs. We're getting people into accommodation. Uh, and, and we're getting really good feedback on it. So... There's a two-pronged approach to where where we're at with 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 the kind of criminal justice work. One is more workshops, finding more partners that want to open workshops with us, so that we can have that traditional model. And one is the the lottery pilot model, um, with the ambition of not next year. Um, Terrify our the team if I said next year, but ambition is there's there's 91 prisons I think that release people, so we we should be in 91 prisons that release people. Um, I think that's a five-year, ten-year plan, not a not a not a one-year plan. But the size that we are, we yeah, we've helped thousands of people, but we can only do a couple of hundred a year, which is good. But if we can do a couple of thousand a year, that's and we keep the the employment rate up and the reoffending rate down, then the impact then is 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 unbelievable. So that that's that's the idea. Kind of look, we're toying with the idea. We have a residential program, as you know. Told me the idea of maybe getting some of our own accommodation outside of the residential program so we can place people into accommodation that we own and they can live independently on that. Because one of the hard things that we haven't talked about is is getting landlords to take people in. So that's kind of an ambition. And then doing all sorts of different things. We're playing with mad ideas. Like we we found one of the lads that we've got on Rottle at the minute, which is day release, sorry, Rottle, release on temporary license. The background as a bike mechanic. So we've got loads of bikes donated and he's. We're playing around with creating maybe another bit of the social enterprise where we fix up bikes. We've already given a couple of bikes that we've fixed up to to people, to participants that I've got no transport. Well, there you go. Here's a bike, cycle to work. And it works. And then, so yeah, doing that up, giving them away to people who need them, but also then selling them at a, at a, at a, a reduced price to create a bit of income. And maybe there's a little cottage industry in that too. 
and then just exploring different ideas with different people to say, well, actually, how can we grow this? But with the, with the aim of the beauty of working for a charity and a social enterprise is we don't, we don't have to worry about shareholders. We don't have to worry about dividends. We don't have to worry about this. Everything that we do and everything that we create in terms of income goes back into helping people. So, yeah, finding more partners so that, yeah, we just keep doing what we're doing, but grow it and grow it and grow it. Yeah, who knows? The sky's the limit because we, we only ever thought we'd have a couple of people. And then when we did a workshop, yeah, five or six lads. So we never expected to be here. So who knows? We are unfortunately coming towards the end of our time. So I guess at this point, if anyone would like to know more about what you do, Recycling Lives, how can they get in touch? How can they find more information about you? Dead simple, um, recyclinglives.org. That, that's the first port of call. And then there's contact us bits on, on that. It's got lots of stuff about it. We're on LinkedIn and we're on Twitter, but I'm not very good at remembering what we're called on those things. So the easiest thing is recyclinglives.org. I just want to say thank you very much, Alistair, for, for a very passionate and positive conversation there. Uh, we really appreciate your time, so thank you very much. Pleasure. That went quick. Maybe I talked too much. <laughs> Fantastic. That was this week's guest, very much talking about what we can do and how we can respond. Just in this last part, then, I just want us to just maybe focus on what we can do. So again, you know, we talked we talked a lot about the challenges beforehand. We touched upon some good practices, but I do think it's it's worth thinking about what we can do to respond. And I think one of the things I'm going to start with is is around perceptions. One thing that surprised me in a really positive way was there was a YouGov poll done in July this year, July 2022, depending on if you listen to this five years in the future, that actually looked at people's perception of drug addiction and the found out that 49% versus 19% with a chunk in the middle of people who were unsure but 49% felt that in the future we need to be dealing with drug addiction in a health way or as you would say mental health problems only 19% said actually not we should just treat it as criminal and lock people away the others were very much sat on the fence but either way we've seen a shift of the public saying, well, maybe we need to look at this a little bit differently because things aren't changing. I think bravery is the absolute key word here. Absolute key word. As we've mentioned before, it, it will take a brave politician to break away from decades of um, heavy punitive policy. But also, as our fantastic guest has talked about, as part of, in fact, it's the bravery of other companies to give opportunities to people who have criminal records. It's the bravery of staff to challenge challenge behaviours, ask difficult questions, and not be put off by perhaps negative or even aggressive responses that you get. It's absolutely the bravery that will make a major difference and when it comes to what was talked about earlier by our guest the important thing and the main message that I get from that is that if you go out on a limb are brave take a chance and give someone a stake in the society they're more likely to want to be a functioning part of it give them a reason to care it's what people forget at the end of the day that we we all need purpose as human beings we all need a reason to exist to function to, to have a life, to have that self-actualization, to feel like we are more than just day-to-day surviving. And I think 
so many people in the criminal justice system that are stuck in those cycles, they are surviving. And as you say, giving that person that stick, giving that person a purpose. And so many people have, have that criminal record. And sometimes it, the amount of horror stories I've heard where people have got a criminal record related to something, nothing to do with finances, and immediately they're told, oh, no, keep them away for the money. They might rob you. And you're like, um, my thing was getting into a drunken fight on a night out and now you're thinking I'm going to rob the till you know what I mean it, it's that stigma that comes with it which for me is still about that black and white you're either criminal or you're not you're either an ex-offender or you're not but actually how can we use people's past in a good way rather than just having this stamp where you just can't work in, in certain areas and again let's let's be honest if you've committed sexual offenses towards children you're never going to be allowed in a school. That just goes without saying. If you've committed violent offences, maybe keep you away from situations where that can arise. I get it. I get that. I'm talking about other stuff, which actually we're not really managing that risk. What we're just doing is it's just creating less and less opportunities for people. It all comes down to, again, the, 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 the bravery to think outside the box and give people that opportunity and that chance to get that extra leg up. And that's one thing I wanted to mention as well. It's like perhaps it's something about having the bravery to think wider than rather than rehabilitation just purely being the responsibility of the probation service or the charities that are nominally around that. Maybe it should be more of a, a holistic approach. I'm definitely sure that we are going to have um, at least one, maybe a thousand follow-up episodes to this one, don't you, don't you think? I, I, I think this is a topic that is absolutely endless. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Please do get in touch if you have any thoughts around this subject matter or if you are interested in being a guest. As you've heard from the episode so far, we have such a range of people coming on here, sharing what they do, what they're passionate about. If you think you could be interested, get in touch, particularly on Twitter at Risk and Resi. Other than that, I just want to say thank you very much for listening once more. I have been David Gill. And I've been Andrew James. And this has been Frontline. We'll see you on the next one.